Listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma, and I'm your host, Trish Glose. Fire up your grills, meet Head Goldwyn on the podcast today. He's the author of Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling, founder of website AmazingRibs.com, a member of the Barbecue Hall of Fame. This man knows his stuff. We had a super fun conversation, but I have to tell you, I learned so much from him. He takes us back where this love of barbecue came from, says it really started with dad, although it was a barbecue joint in college in Florida that really everything clicked for him. We talk about the science of barbecuing and grilling, the difference there. He breaks down some mistakes that most of us make in front of a grill or a smoker. And then we start talking turkey. And I have to tell you, I learned so much about how to cook turkey this year for Thanksgiving. It's coming up. It'll be here before you know it. So grab some paper, maybe a pen, and get ready to take some notes. Here's Meathead Goldwyn. Hello, Barbecue Whisperer. Ah, am I supposed to whisper as we speak? <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> no audio issues for this podcast, please, sir. Uh, Meathead Goldwyn, thank you so much for being here with me today. Uh, you can just call me Meathead. Okay. Well, I have ac- I have some questions about Meathead, but first of all, I want to introduce you properly, sir. Barbecue Whisperer, you're also the author of Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling um, on the New York Times bestseller list, right? Incredible. Yeah. Um, 100 best cookbooks of all time, according to Southern Living Magazine. There it is right there. Yes. Nice. <laughs> Um, in doing my research, you're, you are and have been everywhere. I mean, Rachel Ray, Harry Connick Jr. show, uh, it's too many to list. Um, your, your cookbook, obviously, but you're not only, you're just, you're a, you're a judge. You've been a wine critic, um, uh, a writer. I mean, I was going to list all this stuff out and then I said, no, I can't because it's just too much. Um, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I was a full-time wino for 20 years. Um, you know what the difference between a wino and a connoisseur is? Please tell me. Ten bucks a bottle. <laughs> I'm at a I'm the wino stage, I think. Uh, uh, no, I was the wine critic for the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune uh, for many years. I published a magazine about wine, and then I switched to solid food about the year 2000. <laughs> and uh, I'd always been interested in uh, barbecue and cooking. And Dad taught me how to grill and. Uh, uh, I started a little website just for the fun of it, and uh, it took off. It's now uh, AmazingRibs.com is now the largest and most popular barbecue and grilling website in the world. We get about 2 million visitors a month, and we have uh, wow. 17,000 members of our Pitmaster Club. Wow. Um, that's significant. Um, speaking of dad, where are you from originally? Um, blah, 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 blah. well, I was actually born on the south side of Chicago. Very quickly thereafter, my parents moved to Long Island, 10 years on Long Island. Uh, then we moved to uh, Sarasota, Florida. Mm. Um, uh, Dad was working for the USDA as an inspector. Uh, and uh, so uh, we lived a little while in Maine. And then um, uh, I went to the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. And um, majored uh, in journalism, sh- right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I learned to write, <laughs> and uh, and actually, I learned I, I I learned photography there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I studied under the great Jerry Ulesman, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, then uh, came back to Chicago uh, uh, and uh, got a job in liquor stores and uh, uh, been here uh, ever since. So uh, been here. Well, actually, no, actually, we spent 20 years in Ithaca, New York. Uh, my, mm-hmm. I got married. My wife went to Cornell to get her Ph.D., and I followed her. Nice. So. I've been around. Well, I read that dad actually started calling you Meathead. Yeah. Yeah, this was there was a TV show back in the 70s, I think, um, called Archie Bunker. Yes. And uh, Archie was a bigot and uh, a racist, Mm -hmm. but he was a kind hearted old fellow. And uh, he had uh, a a daughter who married. uh, uh, They were both kind of hippies and uh, Rob Reiner was the son-in-law and Archie just called him meathead because they right. didn't agree at all politically. And uh, dad and I didn't agree politically, although he was not a bigot or a racist. Um, and he, we, he jokingly dubbed me meathead. And uh, this was long before the internet, but when the internet first appeared and I got involved very early in the internet, um, uh, you know, you had to have an, a name, an avatar, uh, mm-hmm. to participate in, uh, message boards and stuff. And Meathead was a natural since yeah. I was into barbecue. Yeah. Um, and, and dad called you Meathead just based on like that show. It was something that was kind of out of affection. Sounds like. Oh yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, we, we, we did have, this was during the Vietnam war. Right. And we had some pretty serious political differences. Okay, so but Meathead stuck. Real name? Can you di- can you divulge? Uh, just Meathead. Just Meathead. Yeah, uh, yeah. My wife and my mother have other names for me, but they're not printable. <laughs> All right, Meathead. I like it. Um, because it sounds. I mean, honestly, when Peg San Filippo, um, basically introduced us via email and and said he would be great for your podcast, and she's like, "Have Have you heard of Meathead?" And I'm like, "Um." It sounds familiar. And then in doing my research and and she kept saying Meathead Meat. I'm like, that can't be his name. Like people can't really call him Meathead. Well, I mean, you know, this is the year 2022. You have to have a brand. You do. You have to have an identity. Yeah. I was Meathead on the internet and I it became my byline. Yeah. And I do not reveal the name I was given at birth. Um, because it's my brand and I don't dilute my brand. It's, it's a marketing, uh, thing. And, uh, that's the name of my book, Meathead. Right. I'm working on a new book now called the Meathead Method. All my bylines anywhere are Meathead. Meathead. Uh, if you dig hard enough on the internet, you can find other names, but, uh, I didn't dig hard enough. Well, I will say this. It does. Um, there is a level of success there, right? I mean, by you committing yeah. to not diluting your brand and sticking to, this name of Meathead does highlight how successful you've been over the last few decades. It has other advantages. You know, um, uh, when I call somebody's business office and I want to speak to the CEO and I get a, uh, a clerk or a secretary or a receptionist on the phone and I say Meathead calling, she always remembers, um, you know, uh, when I call back, it's, oh, yeah, hi, Meathead. Yeah. So I, I get through right away. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to think about I'm going to think about my brand and in my avatar, what I want uh-huh. that to look like. Uh-huh. Yeah. Nice. How about Big Red? <laughs> you know, what's funny. <laughs> so my my uncle, I'm from South Carolina. My uncle has red mm. hair. He's 
big red. I'm little red. Okay, I like that too. So, and I love South Carolina. Um, uh, great place for barbecue, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, of course, famous for its mustard barbecue sauces, which many people don't know about. The word somehow has not gotten out that far. That's a and shame. They're marvelous. I mean, they're absolutely my first choice for uh, pulled pork. We did, um, we did vinegar based sauce. My my papa and my uncle would barbecue an entire hog. Um, wow. kind of during the holiday season, mm-hmm. he, you know, that they did it sort of in the ground initially, just like right, mm-hmm. kind of right below, not like dig a hole, but kind of right mm-hmm. below the ground surface. And then, um, ultimately built a, a grill for this ginormous hog. And it was, you know, as you know, several hour mm-hmm. process, grandma would be in the kitchen making the barbecue sauce. The whole house would smell like vinegar. You know, you breathe it in and... <laughs> Like pepper spray, yeah, almost. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I have well, very the Carolinas. I, I mentioned the mustard sauce, which is, I think, one of the most unique. But the Carolinas have two other famous barbecue sauces. Um, uh, at Lexington dip being one of them, which is mostly um, vinegar, mm-hmm. and uh, the other one is um, also uh, the East Eastern uh, Carolina, almost all vinegar. So they're very similar, but. Uh, um, and people scrunch up their nose when you say vinegar on, mm-hmm. uh, on, on as a barbecue sauce, but it works marvelously. Uh, uh, the acidity is really good at uh, cleansing the palate of right. fat, and a lot of the uh, barbecue meats are fatty. And mm-hmm. uh, so you take a bite of uh, pulled pork, and uh, it fills the mouth with flavors and mm-hmm. juices and fats, and this vinegar sauce clears it out. And the next bite is as good as the first. Yeah, you can keep eating. Just more. Just yeah. eat all of it's it. Like, it's like drinking a good Sauvignon Blanc. It <laughs> clears out the palate, <laughs> rinses the palate, and you're back to brand new. Yeah, pulled pork and Sauvignon Blanc. So much in common. Um, was food important growing up in your family? Yeah. Um, Dad was a uh, food technology major at NYU. And uh, he uh, and Uncle Buddy owned a... Uh, Started they, when they graduated, they opened a dog food factory that didn't work out, and they opened a butcher shop. Um, and that didn't work out all that well. And then dad went to work for the USDA as an inspector. And um, uh, his first gig when I was 10 years old was um, the coast of Maine, uh, inspecting uh, blueberry factories. And I have fabulous, fond, romantic memories of a idyllic summer on the coast of Maine um, and uh, lots of blueberry pies and uh, lobster and uh, wonderful, wonderful. And then they transferred him to um, uh, Florida where he was inspecting orange juice factories. Hmm. Um, So, uh, uh, but then he found one of the orange juice factories adulterating the juice with water they shut him down. And of course, he was unemployed now. <laughs> he became a stockbroker after that. Oh, wow. Okay. But so it sounds like food has always been, I mean, his work. Food was his work. Yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, as a family, did was was food, like, did anybody in your family cook? Was it, dinner? you know, around the table dinners? I think we were pretty middle class, ordinary cooks, mom mm-hmm. and dad. Mom had a few specialties. She did a lasagna that was pretty good. Dad was a griller. Um, that's where I got the taste for it. He had uh, something like a Weber kettle. I don't know if it was a Weber kettle. 
and uh, his specialty was flank steak and uh, maybe uh, uh, beef ribs. They were both inexpensive cuts, and uh, I loved to hang out the smell of grilling beef. And, uh, you know, he maybe let me have a sip of beer while I was hanging out with him. That might have uh, stimulated my interest. Um, but that's where uh, it kindled my love of grilling and barbecue. And uh, um, uh, it, it, it cascaded from there. When I was at the University of Florida, I, I discovered uh, real barbecue um, in, a, uh, in a sketchy neighborhood of town. And uh, <laughs> I kept coming back and kept coming back. And these these old black guys who were there couldn't figure out what this college kid was doing hanging around. And uh, eventually they took me under their wing and they brought me out back and let me watch the guys tend the fire. And I learned classic old Southern open pit barbecue from uh, a, a couple of old black guys in Gainesville, Florida, who were doing it. And we became good friends. And uh, uh, I was their pupil. It was fantastic. I love that. They just sort of took you in as, as a student. And so it sounds like you went to University of Florida. You were a journalism major. What, what did mm -hmm. you want to do? Well, um, I, 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 I had an aptitude for writing. Actually, I started out in pre-med uh, and, and then I flunked out. <laughs> um, like, uh, organic chemistry killed me. And, and mm. since then, I've developed a real interest in chemistry um, and calculus. The, those two just kicked me out. Tell and me when it. you flunk out during the Vietnam War, you go to war. And I was not interested in that idea. Um, uh, so I, uh, um, I got back in as a journalism major and I thought I'd work for newspapers. And in fact, I did for a while. Uh, I was a stringer for the Associated Press uh, in Gainesville. I, I contributed a number of bylined articles for them. And uh, I, uh, I had a hobby of photography, which got fairly serious. Uh, the university had a number of well-known photographers. Jerry Yulesman, one of them, mm -hmm. not a household name, but if you Google him, he'll blow you away. His um, work looks like Photoshop, but this was long before Photoshop. Um, and uh, he was a genius and uh, he just died this year. Wow. Um, and a tremendous influence on me and uh, writing and photography. Uh, you know, they're awfully handy on the Internet if you have those skills. I was going to say, sounds like it set you up for all of these yeah. things that followed, um, especially yeah. being on the Internet. But going well, back. New... Go ahead. I was going to say that I did all the photography in my last book. And it's, you know, above average, not great. But I'm doing the photography for my new book. The old the last book was subtitled The Science of Barbecue mm -hmm. and uh, Grilling. This new book is um, the um, is about culinary art. And uh, I have brought in I, I have a master's in art and uh, I did. I, I brought in my art background to to this and I've really elevated the photography. And some of them, if I say so, the, the photography is just gorgeous. That's amazing. I you know, I was just talking about this with a friend. Um, I recently did a story on a local restaurant here that's on the New York Times restaurant list, 50 places in America they're excited about. So I did this big story. You know, I shot all of the video and, you know, my friend said, you know, the camera work is is stunning. Did you do that? And I was like, yeah, I did. It's vulnerable, right? Like putting putting your talents out there for mm -hmm. people to appreciate or judge. It's mm -hmm. very it's a very vulnerable place, 
um, like that. Like I didn't realize you shot all the photography for that first book, but that's a vulnerable place because, you know, as it comes from a place, it comes from your heart, right? Like, well, that, that book, the, the photography I'll say was meant to be, um, expletive, uh, that is to say, explaining, um, uh, what I'm doing right. And d- demonstrative, uh, it, it wasn't, uh, a, an effort to artistry. This book, I am making an effort at artistry. Got it. And, uh, a number of people who've seen the photography have commented on the uh, uh, the painterly uh, look to the images. So I'm very pleased, very pleased. Fantastic. You'll, Con- you'll see. Congratulations on that. Let's go back to the the group of barbecue guys in Gainesville, Florida. Did that click for you at that moment when they sort of took you in under their wing? Oh, yeah. Were you like, this Oh, I is- knew I was watching alchemy. I knew I was watching... Um, skill, artistry. Um, uh, I knew I was watching something special um, that not a lot of people knew about. Um, I knew that this was um, uh, important culinarily to and historically and culturally to American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, this was all obvious right on the surface. I mean, wow you know, the first bite of great barbecue, you, you, it, it's ethereal. It takes you, everyone loves it. Um, and, uh, uh, I was, um, enamored, um, instantly. Uh, I never took it all that seriously at the time I was working in a, um, a liquor store, ABC liquors in Gainesville. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was deep into wine. And uh, I, uh, that was a lot of fun. I was bringing wine back to the fraternity house and we were tasting wines together. And uh, I was making wine recommendations to my professors and they were grateful. <laughs> I don't know if it ever helped my grades, but uh, um, so I was becoming a wino with a, a side interest in barbecue. Right. And that led to about a 20 year career in and around wine, where I became the wine critic for several newspapers, syndicated wine, or I even published a magazine about wine for a while. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but, uh, uh, after a while, I, I, I love wine to this day and I love the wine community. And I spent a lot of time out in your neighborhood, out in Oregon. I knew David Lett, you know, who was the founder of the Oregon wine industry. I knew him well. Um, uh, but it, 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 be, it, wine people, profess that it's not snobby, that it's very down to earth and friendly. But in fact, there is a lot of snobbery around it. And in fact, it is esoteric and the language is um, highfalutin and it's a jargon that is meant not only to describe, but to separate the experts from the rest of society. Mm -hmm. And that kind of got to me after a while. And my love of food took over. And in 2000, I, uh, I sold my wine magazine. Um, I, I, I owned International Wine Review magazine, and uh, I sold it. And uh, I uh, uh, embarked on uh, the barbecue career. It's interesting that you say that because I I feel at times that I am in the wine club that I'm there because mm-hmm. I do know some of the words and the language, and mm-hmm. you know yeah. I I know what what grows where for the most mm-hmm. part. Um, but then you start talking to the the really smarty pants wine folks who are incredibly mm-hmm. wonderful and nice and brilliant. And then I just feel really intimidated. And I'm just like, yeah. I'm not going to say anything. 
Uh, listen, wine is 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 just absolutely marvelous stuff. It's miraculous, and the the way it's grown and the people who really know a lot about it mm-hmm. are re- remarkable. I mean, I was on the U.S. wine tasting team. Um, uh, I competed uh, in a competition at the World Trade Center um, wow. uh, against the uh, the French national team, and they kicked our arses. Um, I didn't even know that <laughs> existed. That. The U.S. wine team. Like the Olympics yeah. of mm-hmm. wine tasting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it still does, but this was back in the 90s. Nice. Um, and uh, there were four of us on the on the team, and uh, it was a blind tasting. We had to identify the wines. And, uh, uh, and yeah, the, the, French, the French kicked your ass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, they kind of like invented wine, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, practically, yes, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so you switched, though. Um, And wine was your life, as you just sort of explained, for so long. But you made the switch to to food, to the culinary world. Um, And it sounds like it just welcomed you with open arms. I mean, it, it, everything clicked. The barbecue world is a little more open, a little more friendly. Um, But I fear, I'm noticing um, some snobbery creeping in there, too. Oh, no. Um, there's well, I mean, it starts with the definition of the word barbecue. Um, um, there are um, people who want to make a big deal that barbecue is different than grilling and that if you're cooking hamburgers on the grill, it's not barbecue. And um, uh, I can I can successfully um, defeat that argument. Uh, uh, that, that, you know, if you if somebody it, 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 I'm not going to get deep into it, but but. Um, it's a little frustrating. Um, uh, there, there is that, you know, the whole concept of jargon, it's a form of language where computer people have their own jargon, barbecue people have their own jargon, wine people have their own jargon. And it's useful in that it helps you de- describe aspects of your specialty. For example, we talk about the bark on barbecue. Well, a lot of people have no idea what the hell we're talking about. We're talking about the crust. Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 wine people talk about astringents. People have no idea what the hell astringents is. Um, but uh, uh, it, it's, it serves a valuable function, but it also is a wall. And it also blockades us behind our wall, defining us as experts and you as novices. And uh, that's part of the problem of jargon. I was really well attuned to that. Um, I taught wine at Cornell University during their summer school, and uh, they had a, a they, they had a summer school um, uh, for alumni. And alums would come back; they'd sleep in dorms, and they they take a whole week of intensive classes, nine to five, including lunches. We did field trips and everything. And my class was right next door to Carl Sagan's class. Now, you know, I can see from the expression, you know, who Carl Sagan is. I don't know if everybody listening knows who Carl Sagan is, but Carl Sagan was an astrophysicist. um, And uh, 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 but he possessed an extraordinary talent. He could talk about astrophysics Mm -hmm. in a language that everybody can understand. And he did a program on PBS called Cosmos, which was a multiple part series. And it was fascinating. And the novice, somebody who'd never looked through a telescope, could tune in and learn. And that's because he understood how to communicate to everyone. And that skill of being able to 
communicate to both the expert and the novice is something that always stuck with me. Jerry Ulsman, my photography instructor, had that skill also. And I have striven towards that goal. I think some of the best teachers that I've ever had, mentors, have all possessed that, mm-hmm. that ability to to communicate, to not make you feel stupid, right? There, There is no such mm-hmm. thing as a dumb question in, in this environment when you're with someone right. like that. Um, I do think that's an incredible skill, and that really does separate those. Again, talking about that level of success, it separates people, right? If, if you can really mm-hmm. break something down that's very complex and you can break it down mm-hmm. so people get it. I mean, who would you rather go to to ask a question? Yeah. If I'd had a organic chemistry teacher like that, I might be Dr. Goldwyn today. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Meathead. I mean, uh, right. I think you have you have some like a PhD in, in barbecue and grilling at this point. Um, oh, I, I, I probably have that level of knowledge, uh, but um, I just have a lot of fun with it. That's well, and you can tell. And again, that separates you, right? That separates you from other people because you can communicate. Well, what really has separated me and what, re- you know, my book has hit 250,000 copies in the last uh, uh, quarter. Um, most cookbooks are lucky to do 10 to 20,000 copies. Uh, what separates it is the subtitle, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. And it's really a science book. The first half of the book explains what is heat, what is smoke, mm-hmm. what is fire, what is energy. What happens when energy um, interacts with meat? What's in meat? What is meat? What are vegetables? And the chemistry and the physics, there's a lot of chemistry and physics, which I hope I have done as my mentors did and explain it in a accessible fashion. And uh, I think that's what has separated it. I think a lot of barbecue enthusiasts um, uh, own the book now because of that, because they, you know, this is 2022. And when we see a recipe, we don't necessarily just want the author to tell us, do step one and shut up, do step two and shut up, do step three and shut up. We want to know, why do I do step one? What happens if I skip step two? Um, What if I substitute brown sugar for white sugar? Um, And, uh, you know, I mean, we we are a technological society. We want to know why. And that's the kind of thing that I do and that I'm best known for. Fantastic. Let's talk about barbecuing and grilling a little bit. Are are the two of them different? I they, There are. Um, I, I'd rather address them as direct energy cooking and indirect energy cooking um, because uh, heat is a form of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we apply this energy to food, meat, vegetables, whatever. And if you apply it directly using infrared, which is the same energy you get when you stand out in the sun, a lot of people think that's ultraviolet. There is ultraviolet in there, but infrared is what makes that the most potent energy that, that burns the back of your neck, that makes you feel hot. And, and, and then when you step into the shade, it's still warm, but now you're warming from indirect energy. Mm-hmm. You're not directly in the rays of the infrared. And that same principles apply to grilling and barbecue. A lot of people try to separate them by, well, barbecue is, 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 is low and slow and grilling is hot and fast. 
But it's impossible to draw the line. What is hot and fast? Is it 300, 305, 310, 200, 250? Where do you draw the line? So the, 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 you draw the line as to whether it is directly over charcoal and glowing embers or flame. That's direct infrared energy like standing in the sun. And the, um, uh, other, the other side of that line is indirect, like you're in the shade. And for most cooking on a grill, I almost always recommend you divide the grill in half and you have the fire and the coals on one side and nothing on the other side. Hmm. And now you have direct infrared energy on one side and indirect convection airflow on the other side. There are two different levels of energy. They work differently and you can use them by moving the food back and forth or by starting in one zone and moving to the other zone um, to control temperature and to uh, control the outcome. Because cooking is all about temperature control mm -hmm. and that means energy control. And so uh, that, that therein lies the real difference. Sounds very complicated and technical, but um, you know the the idea that one is in is hot and fast and the other is low and slow it just doesn't apply. Okay, and I know just from my teeny tiny bit of experience when it comes to grilling and barbecue and especially growing up with with you know family who that's what we did a lot. Um, different meats require different methods. Is that safe to say? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you need to look at the cut of meat mm -hmm. and determine, um, is it a very tough cut of meat? That is to say, does it have a lot of connective tissue? For example, ribs, they protect your vital organs, your heart, your lungs, your liver, your stomach are all inside your rib cage. And they are connected, these rib bones, with some very tough resilient muscles that have a lot of connective tissue right. surrounding them and that connective tissue makes them very tough and if you just take a slab of ribs and throw it on a grill directly over the flame or the charcoal um, it'll be done in two or three hours but it's going to be very tough to chew um, the, the 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 goal now is to break down that connective tissue mm -hmm. to make that connective tissue melt into gelatin and that connective tissue, collagen, will break down into gelatin um, uh, at a lower, slower, indirect convection airflow uh, environment. And it can be very tender and juicy if you cook it that way. And you will typically cook a slab of ribs up to 190 to 200 degrees. Well, well done is 155. Right. You are way past well done. Right. You are in the stratosphere. You're almost to the point of boiling temperature, which is 212. 203, 205 is a good target. 212, is, so you're almost at the point of boiling. I mean, um, a, a medium rare steak, which is it, when it's most tender and most juicy, is 130 to 135 degrees. Mm -hmm. That's a medium rare steak, not 140. But And well done is 155. So you've got two different kinds of meat. A medium rare steak like a ribeye or a filet mignon has very little connective tissue. Mm -hmm. It's very tender of its own. So it doesn't need all that long, low and slow breakdown of connective tissues. It's going to be tender from the get go. Um, 
you know, when you were talking about ribs and connective tissue, I immediately went to brisket, which we've, we've smoked some brisket in, in our lives and it was incredibly frustrating. Um, brisket is, um, the uh, pectoral muscles of the steer and steers don't have collarbones. So the entire weight of the front end of the animal, which is more than half the weight, it's almost two thirds the weight because it's got the head, the right. shoulders, the chest, the, uh, the, the, the lung capacity, all up on the front on the weight on the pectoral muscles. There's two muscles, um, in the brisket. And so the connective tissues there are very strong, very tough, and they absolutely require very low temperatures mm -hmm. for a long time to break down these connective tissues. But the secret to great brisket, in addition to cooking it low and slow for a long time, the secret to great brisket is to start with a good brisket ingredient. And that's the secret to all great cooking. Uh, a lot of chefs will tell you, it's not so much your cooking technique as it is your buying technique. Agreed. Learn to buy great ingredients and you're off to a good start. Yes. You can make bad food from great ingredients, but you can't make great food from bad ingredients. And so when you're shopping for brisket, you must get USDA Choice or USDA Prime or Wagyu. These are the higher grades and there's more um, marbling and there, it'll be more tender. So if you just go into the store and buy any old brisket, there's a high likelihood you're getting USDA Select, which is a lower grade and is guaranteed to be tough. Yikes. Yeah, I agree. You have to, um, good ingredients. And as you know, living in, in Oregon, we have amazing ingredients here from you know all the local ranchers and farmers. And so yeah, I, I think yeah. we're super lucky because you do get to start with incredible ingredients, but that's mm -hmm. exactly where it starts. If you, if you're, again, if you're buying bad ingredients, you're kind of screwed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about mistakes, major mistakes, maybe a, a handful of major mistakes that we make when it comes to grilling and barbecue. Well, I mean, any cookbook author worth the salt, uh, can take an hour telling you about all the mistakes we've <laughs> How made. How much time do you have? <laughs> I am constantly experimenting, constantly trying new things. Just um, two nights ago, um, not barbecue. Um, I was in uh, Italy a few years ago and we landed and uh, I met up with the uh, correspondent from the New York Times and she took us to a little place and uh, I had uh, uh, pasta carbonara. Uh, which is um, uh, uh, pasta with raw egg yolk. And it, it sort of cooks, so it's it's safer. Um, and it was just heavenly. And um, it, it just absolutely, and I've been trying to replicate that ever since. And about every four or five months, I'll convince my wife to let me try again. <laughs> and I have failed miserably every damn single oh, no. time, including two nights ago. I just cannot nail it. And um, I, I have the good fortune and the misfortune to have married a um, PhD microbiologist who just retired as one of the top food safety experts from the FDA. And so she will not allow me to serve her raw eggs. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, there's a very high, not high risk, there's a risk of salmonella. Right. Uh, and, and Campylobacter. And uh, uh, raw eggs, uh, they, they carry this bacteria often, not always, but it's risky. 
Um, so I have learned how to pasteurize eggs with sous vide. Hmm. Um, if you if you put the eggs in a sous vide bath at 131 for two hours, you'll come out with a perfect egg that is still has transparent whites and um, uh, uh, tender yolks, but they're pasteurized. So you can now use these ingredients for eggnog and for other carbonara, you know, food and carbonara. And my, I just, it didn't work out. Just, oh, I, no. I, I, yeah, yeah, I'm not done. Although she told me in the next time I do it, I'm eating it up by myself. <laughs> <sighs> you know, what's funny. I I'm with you on that because I love carbonara. I've tried to make it a few times. The last time I made it, it was, it was okay, but you, I see other chefs make it and I'm like, mm-hmm. ah, why can't I do, why, why doesn't mine turn out like that? It doesn't look like that. It's so frustrating. Yeah. And I, you know, I just had numerous dishes that, you know, keep failing after we were in, we were in Venice on that very same trip and tasted um, uh, pickled sardines. Mm. I went to a little place in Venice where the tourists don't go. And uh, the waiter and we were able to communicate and uh, we told him we wanted to eat the local dishes, not the tourist dishes. Yeah. And then he said, well, you know, he was skeptical, but he brought out these pickled sardines and they were just fantastic. I bet. Just fantastic. Called sardine at sour, S-A-O-R. And I have since found recipes for it, triangulated. I know how to do it. I just can't do it. I, I, I have failed at it multiple occasions. Okay, so let's get so, back to well, mistakes with with grilling and barbecue. I mean, I know I've made several in in this area. Actually, well, my husband's the master griller around here. Honestly, the grill intimidates me a little bit. It's scary. It's a scary place. Shouldn't be. I know. Um, <laughs> I know. I, it's kind of weird. Um, I'm going to tread very lightly on delicate ground here. Okay. Okay. Um, but I don't know why for sure. I have some theories. Don't know if I can ex- explain them properly here. I've written about them. But somehow or other, the grill and the TV remote control belong to men. <laughs> and, and and I don't know why. Uh, I, I have a few. Yeah, you're laughing. It's true, isn't it? Um, uh, it, it, I, I, and we have our pitmaster club, um, uh, our website's open to anybody. Right. I mean, the recipes work regardless of gender. Right. Um, uh, but, um, our research shows us that 80% of our audience is male hmm. and almost 90% of our members are male. And there and, are some incredible female grillers oh, out there. Incredible. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, they're they're some of the uh, some uh, some of my mentors. Uh, Candy Weaver, uh, former uh, president of the Kansas City Barbecue Society, has taught me many tricks. Uh, uh, they're out there. Um, uh, okay, I'm Leanne gonna find Whippen, them. Uh, Yeah, but um, I don't know why. But uh, a lot of women feel intimidated by the grill. I think some of the reasons are it's it's a little dirty sometimes, especially charcoal. And if you've just gotten your nails done, maybe uh, that, that that that's not uh, something you desire. Um, it, the smoke gets in your hair. 
Um, okay, that I is told true. you I was treading on delicate land here. The, um, okay, no, the smoke in the hair, that is a big one for me, especially if I've just okay. washed it and then I leave and I smell like a barbecue pit. No, thank you. Yeah. I'm with you there. I, I got news for you. It's a pheromone, honey. <laughs> uh, leave it. She smells like smoked meat. I love it. Um, but for, for seriously, is another uh, some of the mistakes um, I would think would be patience, like not having yeah. patience. Okay, a lot of things require patience, and you know, as long as we were talking about gender. That's an area where women have it over men. <laughs> you know, I mean, guys are terribly impatient, and there's there's a well known phenomenon that occurs with a lot of big cuts of meat. If you're cooking them at a low temp, like two twenty five brisket and pork butt particularly will go up to a temperature around 150 170 internal temperature and then they'll stop i know it's called the stall and it's called the stall and they won't go up in temperature and meanwhile the guests are arriving and you're going to get it up your goal is to get up to 200 or so and it's stuck at 150 and it's not going up and you're freaking out you're pulling out your hair Mm -hmm. the reason for this is is that the hot air is warming the meat. And as the meat warms, the moisture is evaporating and the evaporation is cooling the meat. And so the war- you reach a stasis, a point where the heating and the cooling are equal and it won't, it won't stop until the surface of the meat dries out. And so if you're based, you're continuing the process you can't get through. But if you stop basting and you just let it alone, eventually the surface will dry out and then the meat will continue to heat and you'll break through and you'll finish the cook. But this stall can last for hours and it it freaks people out. There are other ways to break through. Another way to break through is to wrap the meat in aluminum foil or butcher paper or something like that. And then um, uh, you've contained it and uh, the moisture can't evaporate and it doesn't cool. Um, uh, seasonings. Is this another mistake? Either the wrong seasoning, too much, not enough. Uh, people don't understand seasonings and marinades very well. Um, and th- this is, this is really interesting science and it's really important to learn. Um, salt is the magic rock. Salt is two atoms, sodium and chloride. That's all. When they get wet, they get what they call ionizing. And they ionize and they can penetrate deep into the meat. And one of the cool things that salt does deep in the meat is it enhances the flavor without altering it. It doesn't change the flavor like garlic does or black pepper does. It enhances and amplifies the flavor. It also messes with the proteins. It's called denaturing. And it changes the structure of the protein so the protein can hold on to water better. So salt is magic. Salt is important. And I know a lot of people on salt uh, restricted diets worry about this. You don't need to use a lot of salt. Um, Our rule of thumb is a half a teaspoon of Morton's coarse kosher salt per pound of meat. And I mentioned Morton's coarse because all different grades of salt, all different brands of salt are different grain size. And that makes them different salinity. So we standardize on one brand and they don't pay me. It's just what we've chosen Morton's course because sure. it's available everywhere and it's easy to pick up with your fingers and scatter. Um, so salt is important. But sugar, for example, is a minimum of 23 atoms, depending on what kind of sugar. It can be more um, black pepper, um, garlic, 
all the spices in your spice rack, they're too large to get very far into the meat. Hmm. They go into the cracks, the crevices, the pores, but physically they can't go much more than a 16th of an inch in. And you can prove this to yourself by getting yourself a pork loin or a turkey breast and go to your spice rack and put every damn thing in your spice rack on there or whatever you want, cook it up, and then slice it in half and take a sample from the center, a core sample. It tastes like turkey. You won't taste any of those herbs and spices because they don't go in. They don't go in under any circumstances on this planet or any other one. <laughs> and so your marinades are a surface treatment. Your rubs and spices are a surface treatment. Only salt gets in. Interesting. So do you just use just salt or do you <clears throat> use other seasonings? Oh, I use I use um, I, I, I won't skip the salt. Right. Because um, it does enhance flavor. It does amplify flavor. It does hold on to moisture. Um, but and I go at the salt with moderation. But, yeah, I mean, uh, we've even introduced our, some of our own brands of rubs and seasoning. Um, and uh, they're really nice blends. And I have recipes on our website. They're free um, for uh, pork rubs, beef rub, uh, uh, poultry rub, fish rub, right. and so on. Um, and absolutely, but they season the surface. Now, if you're eating a flank steak, for example, which is maybe an inch thick, the surface is a large part of the of the bite. Exactly. You know, if you're taking a slice of a turkey breast on Thanksgiving, the surface is a very small part of the bite. Right. Which is why a lot of us rely on gravy for flavor. Yeah. Because the gravy has flavor and that you can get all over the interior. Let's talk turkey. That was a really nice segue, by the way. <laughs> there's a little talk there's a, turkey. There's a little holiday coming up. Um, coming up quickly, actually. I can't believe October feels like it's almost over. Um, oh, dear, dear, dear. I know. We have a little holiday coming up uh, mm -hmm. where a lot of us will cook a turkey and a lot of us will either do it perfectly or we're going to screw it up. Yeah, um, I have I have um, a lot of advice on turkey. Ooh, um, okay. I, I have written extensively on the subject. I've even done an ebook, which is on Amazon for $3.99 on everything you need to know about turkey from buying it to leftovers. Okay. Um, but I have a lot of it on our website for free. Um, and there are several things, there are several tricks um, because turkey is, is, is problematic. I mean, it's very large, it's very thick meat. Um, it is not a very flavorful meat. It's easy to overcook. And um, especially if you've not done it before, uh, following a few guidelines uh, will get you there. S most important thing is don't cook your first turkey on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> Please. If you've never cooked a turkey before, cook one next week. Okay. Cook one tomorrow. That is a really cook good Cook one in advance. Experiment. Go to my website. Go to AmazingRibs.com. The recipe I give is for cooking the turkey on the grill. But a grill is just an oven outdoors with a lousy thermostat. It's very similar to cooking indoors. Um, and a lot of the techniques and the concepts, the science, apply to cooking indoors as well. Um, but I would recommend you consider cooking your turkey on the grill or if you have one, a smoker. Number one, it leaves room for pie in the oven. Um, that's most important. <laughs> Number two, turkey and smoke go together really well. 
and you can get a lovely, delicate smoke flavor in a turkey on a regular old grill. You don't need a fancy, dancy Texas pit. Um, so experiment, practice. Um, uh, number two, don't go crazy and try to inject it. With, I've heard people injecting turkey with Dr. Pepper, um, crazy stuff like that. Um, let the turkey's flavor shine. Um, you're going to put a good rub on the surface, a good seasoning, and I'm going to teach you how to make a good gravy. But <clears throat> don't try to in in inject it with a bunch of crazy stuff. Although I do have a technique for injecting with butter, um, which is butterballing. That's how it began. Yeah. Um, but it's not necessary. Um, don't stuff the turkey. Yeah. Now, you got to think about this from the science standpoint. Um, in your oven, the hot air cooks the outside of the bird. But air does not penetrate the meat. The meat is muscle. And it's about 75% water. And air cannot penetrate it. Um, nothing much penetrates it except salt. Um, it's fully saturated. And water is a great insulator. That's why it takes so long to cook a turkey. Um, the hot air cooks the outside of the turkey, but as the outside begins to warm, it begins to build up energy. It becomes like a battery or a capacitor, and it passes that energy down towards the center. So the hot air cooks the outside of the bird, but the outside of the bird is what cooks the inside of the mm. bird. So the thicker the bird is, the longer it takes to cook. And this is a core principle in almost all cooking. It's the thickness of the meat that determines how long it takes to cook, along with the temperature of the air. Um, and whether you're using infrared or indirect, those are the, the three variables. But think about the thickness. A one inch thick steak cooks a lot faster than an inch and a half or a two inch thick steak. Anytime you read a recipe that says, put the steak in a cast iron pan and cook it for three minutes on one side, flip it over, cook for two minutes on the other side, run, don't walk. And you know, any recipe that doesn't give you temperatures, Thank you. this is 2022, <laughs> digital thermometers are inexpensive and essential. Nothing will make you a better cook faster than having good digital thermometer. Mm -hmm. And you can get a great digital thermometer for 30 bucks or less that will give you a precision reading within five seconds. Um, that There is nothing more valuable than that, especially when it comes to turkey, because you're going to cook turkey to a temperature past well done, because turkey and chicken, because of the way they're handled and slaughtered, are often contaminated with pathogenic bacteria. And that's sad, but it's true. The government needs to fix that problem. But until they do, you've got to cook turkey to a minimum of 160 degrees. Right. USDA says 165. I think 160 is perfectly safe, and there's evidence to back me up. And it makes a difference. And if you go past 160, you're going to be eating cardboard. Um, and you need a digital thermometer to get you there. That pop-up thermometer is not reliable. Garbage. Pop-up thermometer is often set for 170 or 180, which is cardboard. Yeah. So the first thing you do is you pull that card that, that pop-up out and throw it in the trash and get your digital thermometer. And if you don't have one, go out and get one on amazingribs.com. 
we have an electrical engineer who tests thermometers, rates them and reviews them. We don't sell a single one of them, nice. but we link you to where to get them. We have over 200 of them t- tested and rated. Wow. So you can check, you know, if you see one in the store, you can see what we're, our rating we gave it. Um, and and get yourself one. You can get a really nice one for as little as twenty bucks, mm-hmm. um, and it'll give you a, an instant reading in five minutes, uh, five critical. seconds. Yeah, they're critical. Yeah, they're... if you've got one of those little round dial thermometers that uh, uh-huh. they take thirty seconds or more, and they're not accurate. It's an old technology. It was invented in the eighteen hundreds. Take it out, put it in your driveway, and back your car over it. <laughs> okay, so. Um, back to the stuffing. Yes. Um, if you stuff the bird, you have made it a lot thicker. You've mm-hmm. turned it into a bowling ball. And it's hard to get that temperature to go from the outside all the way down to the center of that bowling ball, which has turkey juice in it and mm-hmm. needs to be cooked. Um, and it takes forever. And by the time you have that center safe, the outer layers are overcooked and right. dry. Right. So leave the center cavity open. Warm air will go into the cavity and will cook from the inside out. It'll cook faster. You'll have less moisture loss and it'll be less dry. And in fact, a better method still is a technique called spatchcocking, Mm. which is a slightly naughty sounding word for butterflying the bird. You get a good tough pair of of, uh, poultry shears and you get find the backbone and you snip along both sides of the backbone and remove the backbone and then spread the bird out. And now you can brown both sides of the bird, the skin side and the cavity side. Because if you just do it Norman Rockwell style and leave the bird whole and leave the cavity open, you're going to have a tan interior. Uh-huh. And brown is beautiful. Brown is flavor. When food's brown, it's because they've undergone a chemical reaction called the Maillard reaction. Yes. And the Maillard reaction is when molecules grow up, they get new flavors, they get it. wonderful. It's, it's, you know, you see it on the crust of bread. You see it when you toast bread, um, coffee beans, chocolate beans, they're all subjected to the Maillard reaction. Um, and, that, and that's why we all love the crust of a roast, uh, the, the brown skin of the turkey. Yep. So if you spread it out, butterflied a you're browning the inside so you're getting more flavor mm-hmm. b it's now thinner it's going to cook faster less moisture loss the problem is it doesn't look quite like the way granny wants it to look right um she wants it to look like the norman rockwell bird right. you can kind of reconstruct <laughs> that shape on the platter <laughs> but if if you can get the gang to get over it and lo- learn to love a butterflied turkey. It's going to be better. It's going to be faster. Um, and use that uh, digital thermometer. Uh, and uh, um, the, one more important tip I want to share is if you have one of those beautiful Calphalon roasting pans, you know, with four inch sides and a V-shaped rack, throw the V-shaped rack away. Okay. When you put the bird deep into the pan, the sides of the pan block the energy, the heat. That's why the bottom of your bird is tan and soggy while the top of the bird is golden. Okay. You lift it up and put it on a rack above the pan so that the air can circulate all around the bird. And now it's gonna cook the bottom 
you're going to get beautiful brown, uh, beautiful golden skin on the bottom. And the, the there's a couple of little chunks of meat down under there. If you haven't discovered them, we call them the oysters. Yes. And they're really good. And you can get those oysters cooked properly. Um, and um, uh, you can um, uh, brown it all around, get it above the pan. And now, now we're going to get to the really cool part. You make your gravy in that pan. What you do is, is when you start to cook this baby, you take uh, the leaves off some celery, mm -hmm. maybe even some celery stalks, some carrots, skin them and chop them up, um, uh, some herbs, parsley, sage, rosemary, thyme, thyme, parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Nice. Throw them in the pan. Um, you can add water or some white wine. Mm um even a little beer don't go too much because beer can be bitter um i get some get that pan filled about a, an inch full of liquid um and some onions maybe even some apples i've got a recipe for this but basically you're going to let the bird drip into this pan and you're going to build a stock mm. this is a turkey stock and you're making essentially turkey soup under the bird and but it's a very thin broth and it's loaded with flavor. And if you do this on the grill, it's going to pick up smoke flavor too. And then just before the bird is done, before 160, around 150, you take that pan out, strain it, taste it. If you need to, you can put it in a pot and reduce it if you want it more concentrated. Adjust the salt. And you don't have to add flour and make a roux and make it thick. If you make it thick, it just sits on top of the meat. But if you leave it thin like a broth like this, it's loaded with flavor and it can penetrate the meat. Huh. And so if you've got breast meat, which can be on the dry side, this stuff will get in there and amplify the flavor and take it to the next level. It's really fantastic. Boom. So those are my those are my best tips. And I've got all this on AmazingRibs.com. Yes. Or if you want, you go to Amazon and buy that $3.99 ebook. So quick question to clarify. Uh, you said the V-Rack toss that baby we don't want that you mm -hmm. want like a rack that sits kind of above mm -hmm. the pan okay yeah you can use you know your cookie dry your, right. your, 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 your cookie cooling rack yep. or even if you're doing it indoors your oven has three three racks you can actually put the bird on one of those racks now you'll have to clean it when you're done because right. it'll have turkey drip you can clean it you know a little steel wool and it'll come clean and so you put the turkey on a rack that's maybe um, uh, you know, you, you got to have enough clearance above it. So you put it down maybe a foot or so below yeah. the, the top. And then you put another rack underneath and your pan goes in there. Okay. And it's a drip pan. Yes. It's catching the drippings. Okay. It's designed to catch the drippings. And now your bird's going to get brown all over. On a grill, you just lift the grates and you put the uh, the pan underneath the grates. I got pictures of how to do this Perfect. on various types of grills and stuff on the website. Okay. Thank goodness. Thank goodness for amazingribs.com. I would be so lost right now. And I am so, <laughs> I am so excited to cook turkey this year. And I'm also picturing people spatchcocking turkeys this year and then like putting them back together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, 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 it's a little crazy because by, by the time it's cooked, you know, it's stiffer. Yeah. And so it's not easy to reconstitute it to look like a Norman Rockwell bird. I'll tell you, I go even one step further. I'm, I did. I hesitate to recommend it because people will be in rebellion. I break it down in eight pieces. I cut the thighs off. I cut the breasts in half. 
um, and uh, I, I take the wings off because the wings cook really fast. Yes. And 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 the thighs like to go up to 170 to 180. They're really best at that temperature. And the breasts, I like to get off of there at 155 to 160. So if they if I break it down, I can start the breasts and the thighs and keep the wings as keep the wings aside and throw them on it, you know, 20, 30 minutes later in order to get them done in synchrony. But I can now use my instant read thermometer and test every piece and get it to optimum temperature. But that's a method, I think, because you really want to enjoy the entire bird. For most of yep. us, I think not, I don't say most, for a lot of people, we don't care. We just want the Norman Rockwell turkey. Mm -hmm. But it's that, one. you bring up a good point. If you really want the bird to be delicious, you're going to cut it anyways, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you're gonna do. And if you break it down before you cut it, then it may, then the carving goes a lot faster, and you can get hot hot food out. All right, meathead. Yeah, I've I mean, sold. instead of standing there in the kitchen for a half hour cutting down the bird, it's cold by the time you serve it. It's so true. I sold meathead. You've just changed my um, life. You've changed my life. <laughs> um, and you don't have to let it rest. Um, this is another unproven theory. Resting meats, um, there's very little extra uh, loss of juices. Um, I, every chef on the world will tell you, um, yeah. let it rest, let it rest. There's no evidence that resting does any good. Um, gets, people want hot food. Serve them hot food. Okay. And for God's sake, don't tent it with aluminum foil because you just cooked it and now you got crispy skin. You tent it with aluminum foil and now you got soggy skin. Uh. So... My okay, my husband's gonna applaud you because I occasionally I'm like, let's just tent it to keep it warm. And he's like, Why? Don't we don't need to tent it. Don't tent it. Mm -hmm. We have arguments mm -hmm. about tenting with aluminum foil. Okay. He I'm wins. on his side. Okay. All right. No. <laughs> hey, I I'm not such a diva in the kitchen that I, I make mistakes all the time. So I feel that. Hey, um me, me too. I bet I make more than you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do. Uh no, I not mistakes. You make more food than I do, probably. Well, no, I make more mistakes because I'm always screwing around. But I will say when you make a mistake, for the most part, you don't make it again. That same mistake, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's 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 not only a rule in the kitchen for me, but it's a rule in my business. I tell all my staff, yeah, don't be afraid to mistake, make mistakes, stick your neck out, try new stuff. But don't you dare make the same mistake twice. Yeah. It's a good rule for business as well as for cooking. Per, yes, but we keep we keep we keep a big stack of carryout uh, menus near the in, nearby in the kitchen because there have been many nights when it's like I can't eat this. Oh, that's so <laughs> funny. Um, quick quick little story about making a mistake. Very early in my career as a TV journalist, travel an hour away from the from the station to cover a fire, a wildfire, because we have them here in Oregon. Um, yeah. I get to the base camp and realized I didn't have a tripod. Forgot my tripod. Mm. Had to drive an hour back to the station to get my tripod. Mm. Drive an hour back to fire camp because I have to have a tripod. If as a TV reporter, you can't do, you have to have a tripod. You can figure some things out, but on a wildfire, you have to have a tripod. I never made that mistake again. So, mm -hmm. so yes, making mistakes is good sometimes. Keep a spare in the trunk of the car. <laughs> I've got. I, I do a lot of photography and I, I've got clamps that will let me clamp onto a tree branch or anything. So. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. th these were yeah. like 
cameras about this big. Yeah, so. yeah, I'm working with I'm working with SLRs. Right. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, we're gonna wrap up a little bit. Favorite meat to either grill or barbecue. <sighs> Tough choice. Um. I love a great steak. Who doesn't? Um, ribeye or a strip, inch and a half thick minimum. Um, I do a technique called reverse sear, which I describe on the website. Okay. You start it on the indirect side, away from the coals, warm it gently with convection airflow so it's even color and even temperature, edge to edge. Get it cooked to around 120, 125. Lift the lid. Move it over, direct infrared energy where you're pounding it with energy and flip it, flip it, flip it. I know that goes against everything you've read, but everything you've read is wrong. If you flip it frequently, you prevent the energy from penetrating very deep. You'll get a beautiful dark crust and the interior will be edge to edge, even temperature, even color. 130 to 135 is your target at those temperatures. We know because we can test it with instruments. The meat is most tender and most juicy. And I, um, I all my life, I have sneered at anybody that used anything but salt and pepper on a steak until recently when I created a rub just for the fun of it um, that uh, is absolutely awesome on steaks. Um, and forgive me, I'm, it sounds like a commercial. No, no, please. But um, it's Meathead's Red Meat Rub. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, is that available just, on the website? Yeah. Yeah. We don't actually sell it ourselves. We, uh, we, uh, we'll, we'll send you to a website that does, um, Amazon has it. Um, all my rubs are and sauce are on, on Amazon. My wife won't let me cook a steak without it. Uh, that said, I am amazingribs.com and I do love my ribs. And there, there's, there are uh, several great tricks to that. We have a recipe called last meal ribs, because if you're on death row, that's what you want for your last meal. <laughs> I like it. Nice. Um, and then favorite gadgets, if any. I know digital thermometer. Well, yeah, I, I hesitate to call it a gadget right. because it's essential. Right. I mean, it's like knives. You've got to have one. I mean, it's right up there with essential uh, with knives. Um. I really like these chamois type leather gloves. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, they, they they're welding gloves. Uh, they make them for barbecue, and they're leather. And they, I mean, in a pinch, I can reach in and grab a hot log, and move it, or or coals with my gloved hand. Yeah. Um, or if the grates need to be shuffled around, I can grab the heavy duty grates and move them around. Um, they're impervious to heat. Uh, they get slimy and dirty, and I, they can be washed. Hmm. Um, uh, and uh, we again, we we test a lot of products. Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually have, I actually have a guy who's on our staff full time, does nothing but test grills and smokers, and he has reviews of hundreds of grills and smokers. Again, we don't sell a one; we just link you to the way to to the sources to buy them, um, and they're detailed reviews with video and everything. Um, and we have gloves that we've tested and recommended a whole bunch of them. Awesome. Well, if you want people to be better at grilling and, and barbecuing, then of course you would test grills and smokers and thermometers and 
try different seasonings. I mean, if that's the mm-hmm. goal, then obviously that's what you're going to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You have been so much fun. I don't want this conversation to end, but we are going to wrap up and get to the final three. Best advice wow. you've ever been, best advice you've ever been given. Uh, was from my dad. Um, he, uh, and I followed it. He said, uh, figure out what you love to do and do it. Oh, make a living at it. Figure out what you love to do and make a living at it. And that's what I've done all my life. Uh, I loved to drink. <laughs> so I was a wine critic and, uh, I love to cook and eat. And so I'm a cookbook author and a website, uh, owner. Um, and I think it's great advice for everybody. And, uh, uh, I'll, I'll offer a bit of advice that nobody ever offered me, but I think I figured it out. Um, uh, I, I like to watch, um, uh, shark tank and, um, uh, you know, you, you see these people, they hear from these sharks and they tell them, Nope, it's not going to fly. And then they go off camera and the camera points at them and says, they just don't get it. I'm going to keep doing it. Even if it destroys me and my marriage and I have to sell my house and I have to knock off a bank, I'm going to keep doing there's, you know, we, we as a small business owner and I've been a small business owner all my adult life. We um, lionize the entrepreneur and we think they are the backbone of American economy. Um, Be careful about quitting your job and your nine to five and your weekly paycheck and your health care and going into business on your own. Be thoughtful. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a huge risk. Um, and we know that many businesses fail. And uh, I have struggled and I have failed. I had a magazine that failed. Um, uh, so uh, that, that's my advice. That's good advice. I, um, yes, I recently, as you know, left TV, the world of TV mm-hmm. news a year ago, and that was scary, you know, consistent mm-hmm. paycheck, consistent, mm-hmm. all of the things. And it's, it is really scary, but it was something that I gave thought to for like three years, three to five years thinking about mm-hmm. what was going to be my next step. So that is very, very good advice. And just to mm-hmm. quit that consistency is a little silly. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Um, what's your happy place? My wife and I um, love theater and travel. And um, uh, we are avid theater goers. I'm in the Chicago area. There is no shortage of great theater here. Um, I'd say we end up going to a play or um, uh, the opera or something every two weeks. Uh, it's expensive. But it's um, mind out of body. Um, it, it 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 forces thoughtfulness. Uh, just uh, last weekend, we went and saw a play called Clyde's. Uh, if it comes to a theater near you, you might you gotta go. Uh, it happens to be culinary. Uh, it happened. It, it's about a a truck stop, um, and everybody who works there is an ex-con, hmm. and it's about mistakes and uh, forgiveness and sandwiches and uh, <laughs> a lot of wisdom about sandwiches in there. And it's, 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 it's funny and profound Clyde's. I love a good Sammy and support the arts. That's incredibly mm-hmm. important. Um, in all things, food and drink, what do you crave? What always sounds good. You know, I'm not real fussy. If I come to your house and you're serving Mogan David, 
I'm going to drink it and enjoy it. Um, uh, I, I'm not real crazy about going to a cookout or a barbecue and eating unsafe chicken and burgers. And I see that a lot. Um, but uh, um, Cheetos. Cheetos. I, that's my that's my craving. Oh, my God. Give, yeah. Put a bag of Cheetos in front of me. They'll disappear instantly. Oh, I love Cheetos. You are not alone <laughs> there, most of America. Because Cheetos, I believe, talk about the science. They have all of these ingredients that hit all of yeah. like all of the senses yeah, sweet so and i just read that somebody somewhere i think in iowa erected a statue it's like three fingers holding up a cheeto <laughs> and it's out there in you know like in a cornfield somewhere and it's just and the fingers are yellow of course cheeto dust of course absolutely um meathead goldwyn you have been so much fun you've given us so much information um you've you've changed my mind literally on so many different things as far as coming like grilling and cooking turkey for this thanksgiving all of the tips and the tricks and the recipes can be found at amazingribs.com mm -hmm. which is your website mm -hmm. which has been running for years now years yeah 2005 incredible so uh, amazingribs.com is where you can find all of this information. Also, if you want to pick up his book, Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling, and you're working on another book coming out. Yes, I am. Exciting. Okay. Well, we will yeah. be looking forward well, to Well, no, it's not exciting. It's it's <laughs> torture. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I, 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 I threw a wet blanket over entrepreneurship. Anybody who wants to write a book, give that a lot of thought because it is I mean, I, I, I said I love travel. Yeah. Um, my wife and I love to travel. We haven't traveled much at all since COVID. And now I can't get away. I, I am stuck at my keyboard until I turn in this manuscript in June. Uh, so. Okay, well, I'll let you get back to work then. Um. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is fun. Thanks. You, you ask good questions. Ah. Uh, it's, always, it's always nice to talk to somebody who loves food. I get interviewed often and... Uh, not always do I find a foodie on the other end of the microphone. So it's, well, this is this is great fun. I'm honored. Thank you so much. I am so incredibly excited that you spent the last, I don't know, hour and an, almost a half with me um, talking about food. Oh. We can geek out over food anytime yeah. you want. Well, um, you know, uh, if you want to talk again, just you know where to find me. I, I do. I do know where to find you. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. You've been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Glose. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.